Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode number 47, Migrations. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. And just one other time, hopefully, um, Mike is forcing me to do this. I just want to do full disclaim, full disclaimer that Mike is forcing me to, to do a shameless self-promotion on our new Discord server, which is uh, available now. <laughs> I don't know what, I, we need a better pitch than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Server. it's not for, no one's now. forcing you to do it. <laughs> We, yeah, we well, want no, people to know about the Discord server. I know, but but you're the one that brought it up last, so I had to blame you because then people right, are like, right. this is too much right, self-promotion. I'll, t- I'll, take, I'll take the blame. Like. <laughs> Hashtag Mike likes too much self-promo. But anyway, we do have a new Discord server, and it's uh, you know taking off quite well. Lots of developers in there from all walks of life and all different experiences talking about what's going on and uh, what they're doing, what their projects are, and helping each other through problems. So... Of course, come and join us. The actual the link to join it will be in the show notes, as per the usual. And uh, come and join us and have a great time chatting away. But anyway, we're gonna kick this week off with our weekly pain point. Mike, take it away. Yeah. So thanks for that uh, terrible segue to me. Just bragging on me the entire time. Okay. Uh, but my <laughs> weekly pain point this week. <laughs> is vanilla js uh and i say that with all the love for vanilla js that i can but uh i haven't used it in a little bit of time i've been mostly on the vue.js train and i have to go back and i'm writing a plugin actually in vanilla js just to make it the most compatible with everything else that i'll be doing in the future and i have to go back and uh, figure out how to like get class listeners going <laughs> and ID listeners, you know, document, get element by IDs and get element by class name. Um, it's I had to go back long, into, it? yeah, it's been that long that I, I forgot the exact syntax of it. Like I knew obviously the structure and everything like that, but I forgot the exact syntax of it. So it was, uh, it was really humbling. <laughs> I have to go back and really get, uh, get reoriented with vanilla JS, but that's going well now. Uh, what's your weekly pain point, Matt? Well, actually, I just wanted to add something to yours, and and to be blatantly honest, I use JS so little, with the exception of moving things around on a UI, that I'll often forget those same things as well. And I'll go back sometimes to to some sort of program that I've done and be like, whoa, what the heck is this? Like, how the heck did I do this? I don't remember how to do any of this. But then once you start doing it a couple of times, you know, bam, you know, it's easy to easy enough to get into. Uh, but my weekly pain point is on the completely other end of the spectrum, and this week, and it is push notifications. This has also been affecting Mike for whatever reason. Push notifications haven't been coming through in our chats. Um, we've tried a different, couple different apps, I think, actually, and they've still been having trouble. Um, I keep seeing to, be, I keep getting like the little app badge, like the little app icon has the little app badge saying there's one like notification, and sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. However, there's no notification in the shade, and occasionally I'll see like the, you know how there's like the little logos up in the shade on on Android, where it's just like the little logos you can quickly take a glance and be like, oh, I have a Teams notification, or oh, I have a WhatsApp notification, or a Messenger notification. Well, I see like our chat notification. So I'll like swipe down and there's nothing in there. So I don't know whether it's that app, whether it's something to do with the fact that we're on the PC version as well. So it's like, you know, marking it as red or something. I have no idea, but that's been my weekly pain point kind of annoying. And I'm sure it's affected other people as well. Not receiving push notifications uh, for whatever app or even email that they use. But anyway, uh, this episode is going to be quite, uh, quite packed. Actually. It's something that, uh, it's going to be a mat heavy episode. We still need that slogan, Mike. Um, since you're so into self-promotion, we'd still need that slogan. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, 
anyway, so we so this is going to be something that uh, this is going to be something that I have done over the years quite a bit. And, you know, I'm not like a, a super big expert in it. I don't do it every single day or even even every single month, but uh, I do do it quite often. And that is migrations. So we're going to do a brief introduction into what I as to what I mean, because some people will be completely inexperienced in this kind of uh, way. And then I'm going to go into the segments. So segment number one is going to be a gather requirements. Segment number two is going to be preparing and planning. And segment number three is going to be the types of migration. And then, of course, our recurring segment web news which is the state of laptops and desktops which is going to be definitely an interesting conversation and rest assured it's not another thing complaining about macbook it's just generally talking about computers and that type of thing so anyway our introduction into this uh this very complex interesting and sometimes easy topic is that which is migration so migrations include things like moving email servers changing a customer's hosting plan which usually includes other services that bundled in with that dns changes so that's changing dns records a records you know whatever other records a records c name records etc etc mx records um sometimes it'll be something like dns changes plus actually configuring the new servers themselves so you know you configure that new server up and then your dns you have to configure your dns to actually point to it that's the type of migrations that we'll be talking about today it's not uh it's not some it's, it's not something else i know that some other people would think it's just literally like taking one old website ripping it out and putting a new one in that is a kind of migration but i'm talking specifically more about moving the servers and the services more of the back end changes more than, you know, just basically ripping one site out and maybe FTPing a new one in. That, that's not really what I'm talking about today. So segment number one, gather requirements. Um, basically, one of the things that's really important, and it's probably really obvious to some, is you really should be gathering as many details as you possibly can. And this can't really be stressed enough. I know it's annoying sometimes for customers. They don't want to really, you know, get into the technical thing. They don't want to tell you all the information. They don't want to, like... They don't want to be bothered, basically. It's like they hire you to do a technical job and you're supposed to do it. However, you do need this information and, you know, you do need to bug them to a certain degree within reason, of course. Don't, like, harass harass them or anything. But you do need to get this information so that the migration can happen smoothly. And some of the main things that you need to grab, some, ma- some of the main pieces of information are some very detailed, and I can, again, I stress very detailed technical notes that list what technologies are being affected and why and how much downtime could be faced. So you're looking at, you know, whether changing this server over, maybe it takes 20 minutes to boot up. So, you know, you're looking at maybe 20 minutes downtime, things like that. You're also looking at what technologies, like I said, are being faced. So things like whether DNS is going to be changed, whether the DNS is staying the same, whether the name servers themselves are being changed, whether the email is being moved, like what's happening, what's going to be affected. Um, and then just like a little quick ad, like in terms of like tertiary things. So maybe you'll get all the servers up and running, but let's say for example, you don't consider the fact that, that your users or your uh, customers are probably using an email client. So sure, maybe their email is working now on their new server, but their new, their email client probably isn't signed into that new thing. And they don't understand what that means into that new server, into that new infrastructure. So you need to be able to have a plan in place there where you're, you know, making sure that the actual user experience on the consumer end isn't affected as well. So this is why you need very detailed technical notes because you won't be able to just come up with this information in your head. You won't be, you'll, and you'll definitely have holes in it. You need to write everything down and try to plug as many of those holes or at least get the information you can to figure out, you know, are they using Outlook? What are they using? How vital is their email? You know, where are they normally logging in? Do I need to send them a new link? And remember, if you're emailing them a new link and their email goes down, you can't do that. So, like, things like that. Like, that type of stuff needs to be written down so you remember it. 
there's always going to be holes that you miss in that type of thing, but they're going to be much less if you write this stuff down. So make sure to make a list of this stuff in those notes. Um, also time frames. So things like, you know, when can there be downtime? Uh, when is nobody using the system? So, you know, the lowest risk time, you know, can anyone even have, or, and then on top of that, determine how long the customer can have downtime. You know, can they even have downtime? If they can't, you're going to have to do what we call, we call a failover. And I'll be talking about that in a later segment, but it's one of those things where some clients, I mean, all clients, of course, don't want any downtime, but sometimes it's something like, Hey, they're starting a new business. They don't actually have a site up right now. So essentially they're quote unquote down right now. And you have like a little bit of wiggle room. So if you are going to go live at eight and you know, it went, it went live at eight fifteen. generally that's not a really a big deal, right? That's technically, I guess, 15 minutes of downtime, but that's not a big deal. However, if they're doing a big company launch event and everyone's waiting for some sort of big counter in an office and counting down to 8 PM or 8 AM or whatever time, and you miss that time. Now that's serious downtime. So you need all the details from the client as to what their plans are, what they're doing. You need to make sure that you're on the same page, get all those details and make sure everything is, you know, set up at the right time, the right and the right time, the right time frames, and make sure you do any, any preparation, which is going to be the next segment. Um, but I'll let Mike kind of chime in on a few points here. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, a big part of any project that you do is gathering requirements. So I just wanted to reiterate how important it is, especially for something like this, like a migration where services can go down, will go down, where data could potentially go missing, stuff like that. It's really important to prepare, uh, as, as Matt will talk about in the next section, but the one, a big part of the preparation and pre-preparation is gathering requirements. Make sure that it's not just you asking the client, uh, what, what do you need? What do you need done? And him telling you what he thinks he needs done. There's a lot more technical stuff behind it. Uh, like Matt was saying with all the different technologies, like a records and stuff like that, the client might not know all that, but you need to ask them smart questions to be able to withdraw that information from them. So you need to make sure that when you're doing a migration, you know what you're, you're migrating. You know the technologies that need to be changed. And then with that, you need to make a list of stuff that, that will be changed, uh, as you're doing it. The other thing you need to, you need to do is set expectations with the client because clients don't know and it's not their fault. They don't know what they need and what, and what is required. And they think that this is like one of those things where you just unplug something and plug it into something else. And it's like a two second thing and it's no problem. You need to explain to your client that it's not an as easy as a process or it's, it's almost never easy as easy like that. It's actually a very, usually a multi-step process that requires a lot of preparation that, that you are doing everything you can, but there could be downtime. There's a potential of downtime here. Like we're going to do everything we can to mitigate it, but make sure that the client understands that this isn't as simple as, you know, flicking a switch on and off. This is a very sophisticated process of going from one server to another or one service to another service. It's never going to be as easy as that. You have to educate your client, make sure that they're aware of the potential risks of doing of doing these things, but make sure that you're not telling them, oh, this is going to be a disaster. No, it's not going to be a disaster, but we are going to be doing everything we can to make sure that this goes smoothly, but this isn't a one one and done kind of solution. And 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 to actually build on that as well, one of the things is 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 if a client is asking for something unrealistic, so if it's something like you're not quite you're not quite versed in a certain technology that will be affected. You're not quite versed in 
you're not quite versed in something like a, a way that something will be affected or you're completely new to it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, you're willing to learn it, but the client says, hey, we need to do this migration by tomorrow at 8 a.m. You know, it's you, you can tell them like, hey, like I don't, you know, try to push them back like, hey, like I we need to prepare for this. And, you know, if you are looking for no downtime, that's probably not going to happen unless we have some time to prepare. So, you know, building on what Mike said there, make sure that they're aware of the severity, but then also make sure that they're aware like, hey, if we want this to be like a less severe or less incident inducing in terms of like an IT sort of term, then, you know, we really need to have that. We really need to have that time to prepare, to do the research, to set up a little fake environment and that type of thing. And and that's what I'm about to get into now. But it's really important that they know, hey, this is going to take time. This isn't, you know, you know, five minutes where I can prepare. This is going to take a long time, even if the migration itself is only going to be about five, 10 minutes. So, so with that being said, then segment number two here, preparing and planning. So before, uh, before you perform uh, a migration, you need to have everything planned out exactly how it will happen. And preparing can sometimes take a long time, especially if you're unfamiliar with the technologies that are being affected. It is often best to have a test environment set up that mimics the production environment that's going to be that's going to be migrated. So something like if you have a if you if you're going to be doing a DNS change, you should probably have, you know, a DNS server maybe on just a local server in your own office where you can kind of mess around with it and see like, oh, if I change these records this way, this is how it acts. This is similar to how my actual change will go. And with this environment, you should actually run through a couple of those tests. So a couple of those migration tests, and that will be to ensure that everything is behaving just as you think it should. And if any problems arise during these tests, this is the perfect place to actually deal with those issues and actually take the time to look up solutions and make notes that will assist you when you perform the real migration. So this will be added to those technical notes, like I mentioned in segment one, you know, bookmark web pages with solutions, write things down, like, hey, if this starts messing up, do this. Make sure you have all that ready, because you don't want to be in a panic looking for notes if something does go wrong when the time comes. And when it comes to preparing, sometimes certain aspects actually can't be done without the use of a production server or a production service. So for example, some DNS changes just can't be tested. You know, if the domain name's in use, you can't be using that domain name, you know, out in the world, obviously. That's something that needs to be out in the world. So you can do similar things when it, when that's the case. You should still do similar things. Maybe you have a dummy domain that you can mess around with. You know, that's the best way to check it out. But don't just say like, oh, that domain's in use. I can't use that domain now. I can't, you know, I can't mess around with it because if I mess around with it and it goes down in my tests... You know, that's basically just straight up downtime at that point. No, you know, make something that's as close as you can to the actual production environment in your test environment and go through the steps there. Just get as close as we possibly can. Now, with that being said, with those notes and everything like that, things can go wrong. And with that, you should have a contingency plan so you can kind of plan for, you know, if step A fails, go to step, you know, A1 or something like that. And some of the plans will generally be something like reverting the migration entirely. So be prepared to just like pull out of the whole situation. Just be like, whoa, I'm getting out of here. You know, something's wrong. We're gonna have to push back the migration. I need to ensure that, you know, there's minimal downtime. Let's get back on the old server or the old infrastructure. Let's get things back up and running the way they were before I started. So make sure there's kind of a contingency plan to go back. Don't be erasing, racing, you know, IP addresses or configurations that you haven't backed up. Make sure that those things are backed up. Make sure that those things are able to be reverted quickly. Also, you can also not necessarily do a full revert, like do a full reversion. I don't know if that's a word, but instead of going back on everything, maybe you did five changes and two of them were wrong. Well, maybe keep the, keep the three, go back on the two and you can kind of tell the client like, Hey, 
you know, we had some problems with these two things, you know, more or less these things are not going to affect the customer facing stuff, but you're going to have to use the old editor for these old, these other two things until I figure out what's going on. And you could do that as well, depending on how, you know, vital that new editor is or whatever it is that you're migrating over. And also performing alternative procedures than the ones planned in case something goes wrong. So, like I said, instead of, you know, plan A fails, go to plan A1 uh, and have those different things to go to. So you, you can say, like, sometimes you'll, sometimes let's say, for example, you do some tests and you think, you, you're like, well, you know, I can't test this particular change in production or like without, without changing the production server. But I think it could be this change that'll work or this change, you know. Now you write, write both of them down, practice doing both of them. And then when the time comes and you actually do the migration, do that first one. That one doesn't work. You have a contingency. Just, all right, I'm just going to, you know, erase those changes and change it to what I did in the second one. And hopefully that works. And that, that's the type of thing that you can, that you can have ready and you can do that before. So there's not as much stress. You're just like, oh, you know, plan A failed. Let's go to plan B. Not a big deal. And. And one thing, another thing that I really want to stress here is that no matter how much you plan and prepare or whatever you do before, something can always go wrong at the last minute. And that's kind of what IT incidents come from. Things can go down. Things can fail. Something even unrelated could happen at the exact same time that you're trying to do something. Maybe you're trying to move to a new host and that new host just goes down. You know, sometimes things go wrong. And those are the type of things that your client needs to be alerted to. Like, hey, you know, if something goes wrong here... The, like, you know, these three things are out of my control. So if something goes wrong, sorry, but that's, you know, not on my, not on my control. I can't do anything about those things. And that's the type of thing that you need to, to discuss with them and be aware of yourself. So you're not in a panic thinking, Oh no, what did I do when it could have just been something that you've rented, you know, not working that day or whatever. And this will kind of move on to the next segment here, which is the types of migration. So segment number three types of migration so the first type that I have written down here, and these aren't like official names or anything. These are just things that came to mind is a migration without the concern of downtime. So this type of migration is oftentimes very similar to setting up a completely new system. And generally you can have um, all of the changes done on the new system and then just quote unquote flip the switch over from the old to the new if they're, if you are migrating from an old to a new. And more or less, you don't have to do any testing other than the fact that well, uh, uh, no testing during the migration, other than just saying like, hey, is this up now? Yep, it's up. And then you just kind of move on because you've already done all those changes and done all those testings before in your, in your, you know, your preparatory step. Um, and because there's no worry about downtime, if something goes wrong, there's kind of a less of a panic. And generally you can revert or you can you know just kind of fix whatever's wrong and there's no panic. This type of migration generally won't allow you to revert to the old system, however, so like I said, you could revert, but you know, generally speaking, this type of migration is when somebody is kind of done paying their old host, let's say, and then they, they're going to the new one, and the host is done that day. You can't exactly tell them like, wait, 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 put their credit card back into the old one, something went wrong. So sometimes you're kind of forced to use that new system, but with again, without that concern of downtime, you're kind of safe. You just got to make sure it gets up within a reasonable amount of time, however reasonable it is based on your situation, how critical that website is or whatever it is, and just make sure it's working. So you still have to do pre like preparatory steps, but this is the least stressful type of migration. Um, the second type is that you want to do is a migration with a, with minimal allowed downtime. So you want to keep that downtime at a low amount of time. And so this type of migration actually generally forces you to do the most amount of research and planning and preparing in my experience. And it will generally happen during a, uh, during a business's very short downtime. So maybe they, 
maybe if it's a factory, they turn off the line for 30 minutes to allow people to go to lunch or something like that. That's like, that's your time frame. Like, hey, get in there, upgrade that server, get out of there kind of thing. Or at night, if they close, so if a business is, if a business closes at night, you could kind of go in for sort of a night shift and then you have that whole time because they're not using it. However, oftentimes migrations of this stature are for critical 24 seven systems that can only be offline for a few minutes. So you don't even have that short time window. Uh, like I mentioned before, or like the business is being closed. Something like email is, is an example of this. So email kind of needs to be there at all times because deals can come in at any time, even when the business is closed or even when those people are at lunch. So this is where you need to make sure that you have the minimal, min, the most small amount of downtime as possible. And this is where kind of the stress comes in. And this is, I would say personally, the most popular type of migration I've seen especially with small businesses. The next one here, which is which I call the failover migration, is generally the one for, I would say, medium to larger businesses, like larger enterprises. This is what they'll usually do, but you can do this for any type of migration, just to be clear. And a failover migration is essentially, just as a summary, a migration with no allowed downtime. So this type of migration is typically for extremely critical systems that cannot see any perceivable downtime. They need to continue working on the old infrastructure and then simply transfer to the new infrastructure with no interruption in between there. And in order to achieve this, you need to have them fail over from one to the other. So a real basic example would be a DNS change. If you have a website on server one and it needs to be on server two, you'd have a duplicate setup on server one and server two. So they'd be running the same thing, server one, server two. And then you'd make the appropriate changes in the DNS to point the traffic to server two. Once it propagates to all the users, the users will see the same site and not even notice that they're on server two. It's invisible to them because it's the same, like I said, on server one and server two. And if a user hasn't received that propagation yet, let's say they're, you know, all the way around the world and the DNS takes a while to change, they'll still, they'll still get the same experience as the guy who already propagated because they're using server one, the other guy's using server two and they're the same. And so there's no interruption to service. And then once that propagation you know once you're confident hey you know it's gone to everybody it's across the world maybe 48 hours later 72 hours later something like that and always check with your dns provider to make sure they're to like check what their recommend recommendation is to be clear but you know once you're confident that everything's good to go that's it everyone's on server two and you can this is usually what ends up happening you generally start to decommission server one because you just don't want dead data there and that it's not being used and this is where th- th- that's it, right? Server two caught server one, but this is where the the stress comes in because you're catching it. You know, you're basically doing a free throw over from server one to server two. If something goes wrong in that stage, you type in the wrong IP address, you type in the wrong domain name, something. You know, you could be spending quite a bit of time fixing it, and that and then that's downtime, and now you have a problem. So you need to basically make sure that it's as flawless as possible in your in your your preparatory stage and make sure you type everything in properly in this dns example all the ips all the names all that make sure everything's done perfect push the change and then let it kind of fail over to from server one to server two yeah and that makes perfect sense uh w- with one thing to note on a failover migration and on all these all these other migrations when you're doing the preparation stages when you're doing the quote stages make sure that you take into account that you're you might have to spin up multiple servers to get a failover going 
if with a DNS change, it might not be that user resource intensive, but with something like a, a large CMS that needs to fail over, you might need to spin up multiple CMS servers to have that failover happen. And that will greatly increase the cost to yourself and also the time you will need to prepare because you're going to need to prepare that, uh, that failover migration method and you're going to need to test it. Like the failover itself might not be very long, but the actual preparation and stuff might be a very long time for you. And plus, when they say failover and they say no allowed downtime, that means you have to be the most prepared in this situation because nothing can go wrong. So you need to, you're taking that responsibility on yourself. You're saying, yes, I can do this, but I'm going to need a larger budget for this. I'm, it's going to be a lot like on my back. So I need a larger time frame to prepare for this stuff like that. So make sure that you give yourself enough budget and enough time to make it worthwhile for you to do something like a failover migration. Uh, the other migrations are a little bit less stressful because you'll have, you'll have some allowed downtime, like Matt was saying. And therefore, if something does go wrong, you can always fall back on that allowed downtime and give yourself some time to troubleshoot and stuff like that with a failover migration. Yes, you can set the expectation with the customer that not everything can go perfectly all the time, but their expectation will be 100% that you have to have it up immediately. Um, that's just like a little tidbit that, that I wanted to add because uh, it, these kinds of things are important to know and it's important to value your time and your efforts as well while you're, while you're quoting this stuff because we've had some trouble with that over the years where it's tough for us to predict what the customer will want. So Matt's classifications here really help us now at this point to be able to kind of be like, okay, so you want this? Well, this will take this much time. So it's kind of, it's an important uh, piece of the puzzle when making a full quote for a client. Uh, With that, unless Matt, you have any other comments on this? I do actually. uh, What I I just thought of was one of the things that, one of the things to be clear is, the, with these types of migration, sometimes it's not possible to do one. So your client might be saying, I need to have no downtime when they're asking you to turn one, like, let's say just something unrealistic. Let's say like they're asking you to physically turn one server off and then 20 minutes later, turn the other one on, but they want no downtime. Obviously that's not going to happen. And like, I'm, I mean, that's obviously a very basic example, but like there are technological reasons and like tons of different types of migrations that could result in a situation like that, where there has to be 10 minutes downtime or something. And it's very important for you to discuss that with the client and say, hey, there needs to be some downtime here. We have to choose a point in time, you know, whether you're closed or whether you're at break or whatever, where it's going to affect you the least, or we need to start talking about other options like not migrating uh, everything over or not migrating some things, like not migrating at all and just keeping on the old stuff. What's the pros? What's the cons? Because we've had lots of clients where we've told them, hey, you know, we want to move you over to a new host. Your old, your host is old or whatever, or it's too expensive, whatever, whatever the reason is. We're going to move you over to a new host. This is what's going to happen. And we always warn there could be downtime. There could be missed email. Generally, there isn't, but you're, you're doing a realistically in server sense, you're doing a major change. You're literally changing over everything. And a lot of the time they'll say, no, we don't want to do that. And that sucks because it's, you know, missed money. But it would really suck if you knocked out some of their email, they lose some deals, and they weren't expecting it. You know, you need to tell them, even if they're disappointed, you need to tell them, hey, we, you know, this is what's going to happen, and this is what could happen as a result. This is a very serious change. It's just like having a surgery, at, like, at a, at a hospital. Something could go wrong during that surgery, right? Generally, it doesn't. You know, maybe the doctor's done it a thousand times, but something could go wrong on yours. It's the same thing. They're, you know, we're doing... A surgery on your server, there could be a serious problem. And with that being said, one last little final point with something like a failover, if they want no downtime. 
always look at the perspective, always look from the perspective of the consumer. So maybe the staff member, maybe your email failover worked perfectly, right? You, the email was going to server one and now the email is going to server two. There was no loss in, you know, server. There was no loss, excuse me, in data. No, you know, mail got lost in there at all. But the issue with that being said is that what happens if you per, you forgot that one step where you forgot to tell them to re-sign in with it on their different email clients. Now you have a serious problem because to them, there is downtime. To them, there was an issue. To, to them, it wasn't failed over. To them, it failed. And now there's something wrong. You have to all, just because you technically did your job, you have to ensure that their experience, the worker and the customer are not being affected. You have to look at it from the server perspective as well as the consumer perspective because they're the one literally consuming the the good, whether it be an email or I don't know, a website working or some sort of a database. You need to ensure that you look at it from all perspectives in those planning preparatory steps. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up at the end there because uh, it's, it, it's an important note to know. We always look at it from, from our side, but you always have to put yourself into the customer's shoes and make sure that you think from their side as well. It's multi multifaceted thinking. Uh, it's an important step in our process. Um, but with that, I think I'm going to move on and uh, we'll get on to the web news. Uh, the web news this week is titled The State of Laptops and Desktops, and it's going to be kind of a, a, a mic rambling kind of web news where I'm going to try to I'm going to try to teach you teach everyone out there uh, a little bit about the current state of the laptop and desktop industry what the hardware is like what we should be looking for as web developers maybe give you some ideas even even for some people that game a little bit uh, just so that you have an informed opinion when you're getting your tech for your uh, for your own business or for for your work or something like that I think it's important to not to come from a place of knowledge in this kind of field, um, this might be kind of, it might not be interesting for everyone, but I think it's still important that you guys and gals take a, take some time to, uh, to listen to this and just to, just to get, get yourself accustomed to the talk. Like you need to know what at least the basic components in the computer are that you are working on. And I'll try to cover a little bit of that in, in this segment. We've had segments on choosing the right equipment, but that was more like a very specific equipment to equipment base. I want to give a more like general purpose description of what's going on in the industry, what you should be looking for in a laptop, what you should be looking for in a desktop, stuff like that. So with that, I'll start with uh, laptops and because it's kind of like I think a laptop is one of the more important pieces to a web developer uh, at this point, especially before we could say that desktops were necessary for our work. But I think right now, laptops can kind of do anything and everything that a desktop can do for the most part, uh, especially in a web develop in the web development field, because web developers, we don't need that much power to do our jobs. Yes, it would be nice to have a lot a lot more power and stuff like that. But when you're talking about getting a website up and running, doing the code in a text editor, launching it in a, you know, an X, XAMPP like local dev environment, that does not take much, re, much resource. Uh, so in with that being said, I just want to give a kind of general overlook on what you should be looking for though because just because it doesn't require much resource doesn't mean that you should go for the cheapest thing out there you shouldn't go for like the you know the cheapest hp laptop that you can find at best buy you should do your research and make sure that you get enough 
uh, enough computer power that it's not going to last you for a year. That's not going to be just reliable for a year, but it will be reliable for four or five years. It's an investment in your business, in yourself, in a con- for a contractor especially to have a good laptop, a good reliable laptop that will improve your workflow as well. Um, so when, when you're looking at a laptop, you're looking at essentially three categories, portability, gaming, and utility. Uh, utility is kind of an interesting category that I'll talk about a little bit later, but in the portability category of a laptop, these are the, if you're, if you're one of those people that like to constantly travel, that like to go to different places, different, like a coffee shop for, for work, like, like to go to a, uh, I don't know, go for a walk and then sit on a bench and do, do some coding. I don't know. There's plenty of people out there that like to use portable electronics that like, that like the ability to be able to travel and not feel a computer in your backpack or be able to take something with you like a notebook. Um, portability, portability computers are actually at a very good point currently in, in their performance and, and their pricing, especially, uh, they're, they're called ultra thin, thin and light laptops, ultra books. These are all the terms that you'll hear when you're talking about a portable, a really portable computer. Uh, so what you're looking for in this, there's a couple of different things. A computer essentially has a processor. A computer has some Ram and a computer has, uh, also a video card. Those are the three most important essential things in a computer. And those are the things that I'll be talking about. There's also a battery in there, but that's, that's less important because, uh, the, the, what you have inside of it will determine the amount of battery essentially. And what you pick will determine the amount of battery. Like, are you going to pick a portable gaming or utility that will determine the amount of battery life you're going to have? Uh, but essentially what you're looking for in a processor's perspective, that's the brain of computer is there's two different companies that make them AMD and Intel. The AMD CPUs are called Ryzen CPUs. There are currently just being launched in laptops, especially in the portable segment. They're fairly new, but they have, they're, they're just, they're perfectly fine if you're going to look for them. They're usually quad core. That's a big thing that you want to look for when you're looking for a portable, uh, like a really thin and light laptop. There's older ones that are on sale and Best Buy has these all the time where they try to sell them off to people that are dual core. Anything with an Intel, i series uh processor that's anything below 8000 series so an example 8000 processor would be like 8665 you're th- those are the ones you're looking for because they're quad core anything below that for for a thin and light will be a dual core you don't want a dual core because a lot of laptops right now a lot of desktop computers are becoming more and more multi-core machine multi-threaded multi-core machines Ryzen came onto the field, which is AMD's uh, processor, a couple years ago, and they were able to bring quad core, six core, and eight core to the mainstream and be extremely uh, price affordable because of that. And they were able to, so a lot of people are buying them right now. And so there's a lot of people out there with eight core processors. And because of that, a lot of applications, a lot of even our applications that we use are becoming more and more multi-threaded. Currently, lately, Windows is becoming more and more multi-threaded as well. They've, uh, they released a patch for Windows in the latest uh, build where it's now using a better scheduler, which essentially just schedules tasks that are going on in the background. And it's become more multi-threaded. So more cores, is more efficient performance and that'll only become better with time. So it's important to future proof yourself a little bit. A dual core, in my opinion, although it probably might cut it at this very moment, you probably will be able to do all the work that you could possibly do. In my opinion, a dual core just isn't the right move at any price point right now because there's plenty of affordable quad core, low power CPUs. 
And low power CPUs, the indicator, if it's a low power or not, this is also kind of important to know, is a U at the end of the code. So for instance, when I was talking about the i7, it'll be an i7 8000 series, so 8665 or something like that. And then there will be a U at the end of that to signify that that's a, a low power processor, meaning that A, it's not going to get very hot. It can fit into a thin, a thin chassis computer, and it's not also not going to use a lot of battery. So a big advantage of that with a portable computer is not only are you getting really thin computer, a really thin computer, you're also getting a lot of battery because it's using a lower power processor. And yes, they aren't as powerful as a, like a massive, you know, massive laptop or a desktop. But from my experience, and I've worked on a few of these uh, little thin, thin machines, they are able to handle almost all our workloads. Uh, and that's including some very light, uh, uh, like Photoshop work, a little bit of video editing, and a little bit of Android Studio compiling. Android Studio is very notorious for taking up a lot of resources, so I'm just putting that out there and make sure that uh, to make sure that you know that these thin and light computers at this point right now are able to handle stuff like that. So it's 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 a safe bet for us. The other big thing with portable computers is usually they're in the 13 inch range for screen size. For me, I, and I've, and I've done, I've used 13 inch computers for quite a while now. It's not quite enough. So I've moved on to a 15 inch computer. I'm sure you've, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I'm using a MacBook, a 15 inch MacBook right now. Uh, but I know a lot of other developers that are just fine using 13 inch, 13 inch uh, machines. They don't need that extra real estate. But if you're like me and you need a, a little bit of a bigger machine, there are options for you in the thin and light game. I think LG makes an LG Gram, it's called. And it's a 15 inch and a 17 inch version. Now I'm not recommending fully like just go to and buy an LG Gram, but they are options in the thin and light game that are larger screen sizes um, that apparently have ridiculous battery life as well. The other thing that we want to talk about is RAM. So a lot of people will be like, okay, well, I need like eight gigs of RAM, four gigs of RAM, 16 gigs of RAM. Which one do I choose and why? So in my opinion, you should be looking for something that has 16 gigs of RAM if you're, if you're looking at an everyday machine. And the reason I say this is not because you can't do your work on an eight gig machine and you can't do your work on a four gig machine, but us web developers, we're usually, if I'm going to put us in a bucket, we like to have a lot of tabs open in Chrome. We like to have a lot of programs open. So you want to have your XAMPP, you know, local dev server open. You want to have your Visual Studio code open that's running maybe Webpack uh, for your compiler. You want to have Chrome open with like five, six, seven, 10, 50. I, I don't know. I'm, I sometimes have like 30, 40, 50 tabs open. That is all RAM. That's what RAM is for. And when that's also multiple. ludicrous. Sorry to interrupt, but that's also no, ludicrous. No, it's not, it's not ludicrous. It's absolutely it's fine ludicrous. Having 50, I am not the only one. Okay. Reach out to us if you're if you have a massive amount of tabs open right now. And, uh, and I will I'm be. Gonna prove, I'm going to prove Matt wrong. I know I'm, Matt. Matt is a minimalist in in his in his tab use, but I do not close my tabs because I'm I constantly need to go back to them. Well, if you go Regardless. if you're if you're at the fifty tab mark, I want you to know right now that you are ludicrous in my book, and okay. not and not 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 the rapper, the other one. Yeah. Well, I had I had 120 tabs open on my phone. That that was ludicrous. What did you I'll, just I'll say to me? That. Did you say 20 tabs on your phone? 120. This is concludes the <laughs> HTML. No. What are you this doing? The HTML, the things. Yeah, this is. You were complaining about battery life in your they, phone. That... 120 tabs on your phone. You, and you were telling me you don't use the browser. What? You, you, you were. You, you do. So when you have. Also, no. when you have 120 tabs open on your phone, instead of giving you a number of tabs open, it'll give you a smiley face in oh, that little square because Lord. it's just it's just like we can't count this many tabs. 
And I don't blame them. I closed them all recently. Well, if you use 50 was, tabs, you better get 116 gigabytes of RAM, I swear. Like, what are you doing, man? Well, I just kept opening tabs. I never closed tabs. Like, I never deliberately closed tabs. I shut my computer at the end of the day with however many tabs it has open, and that's it. That's how I do it. Um, regardless, in my opinion, if we're looking at a computer that you want to use for, you know, four, five, six, seven, maybe 10 years, and I'll talk about why that 10-year mark is interesting at this point. I think it's a possibility to, to buy a computer today that could be a very viable in 10 years. If you want to use a computer for that long, I don't think you should go anything lower than 16 gigs because as programs become more intensive, as development tools become more thought out, they will be using more RAM because they're just going to be doing more stuff in the background. And that's what RAM is for, is be able to hold a lot of things in the background so you don't have to constantly close and open and reload your application. So in my opinion, 16 gigs of RAM is what you're looking for. Next, uh, that that's kind of it for the portable computer aspect. So make sure that, again... You're looking for a quad core processor at minimum. Ideally, if you're, if you're listening to this in the future, I'm sure that there's six core processors for, for portable RAM. Any, anything with more cores is better. So try to get as many cores as you can for your budget, essentially. Don't go with dual core. I don't think I, I wouldn't recommend doing a dual core at this point. And you're looking for four, uh, at least four physical cores. That's another uh, very clear distinction I want to make. Four physical cores means that there's four cores and potentially there could be eight logical cores. What Intel has and what AMD has now is this thing called hyperthreading. Uh, it's a little bit different on AMD side. It's called SMT, but it, regardless, it doesn't matter. Just know that it's essentially splits your core in two and allows your process to use one core as two. But it's not the same as having a physical core. So you want four physical cores. So when you're going to a shop and you're asking for 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 advice from a tech there, if you're doing that, or you're going on on a website and looking for a looking for a laptop make sure that the laptop that you're buying has it specifically states not for logical cores but for physical cores that's an important distinction so you're looking for a laptop with that 16 gigs of ram and then screen size is up to you most portable computers will be at the 13 inch mark so you're kind of going to have to take that with a grain of salt if you're willing to sacrifice that the real estate then hats off to you if not then you might have to go for something a little bit heavier uh in the end but the next category here, and a lot, I think a lot of people will, will need to know about this category because a lot of web developers, the people that are on the, on PCs, they do like to game. Uh, I've noticed this trend, not all. I, I have noticed, I've known many web developers that don't game at all. So that's fine too. No problem there. But a lot of us do like to game. And when you're looking for something that can do both, uh, it could be beneficial because a gaming computer is usually a lot more powerful than a, like a, a portable thin and light computer or even a utility computer. So you're buying something that's going to be very, very, very capable of handling your web development workload. Um, and in this case, you're looking for something also with a probably an, a quad, at least a quad core, but you're at this point, you're probably looking for more of a six core or even an eight core processor. Again, physical core processor in your, in your uh, notebook in your laptop. And then you're also looking for a graphics card now. Now I didn't mention graphics in the portable section in the, in the thin and light section, because although there are thin and light graphics cards, it's not important for you. It's not, it's not something that you should be looking for in general when you're looking for these things, because again, a graphics card is not going to really help you in the web development industry. Uh, yes, it might help a little bit of video editing. It might help a little bit with uh, Photoshop, but essentially you can do everything on an integrated graphics of, of a machine. 
But with gaming, you're definitely going to need a graphics card. And at this point in time, as I'm talking right now, uh, the minimum I would recommend in a gaming laptop would be something like an NVIDIA graphics card that's a 1060 with 6 gigabytes of VRAM and above. I wouldn't recommend anything below that. There's there's other graphics cards called 1050 and 1050 Ti's. And a lot of people will try to, a lot of like sales reps and a lot of websites will try to push those to you as gaming computers or gaming laptops. In my opinion, with the pricing that I'm seeing right now for gaming laptops, you shouldn't be going with anything less than a 1060. And even then, if you're going to be spending some money, like some extra money, and you want to future-proof yourself a little bit, a 2060, which is the next generation of NVIDIA graphics cards, or a 2070 is is more your is more down your pipeline. Like you should be looking at those probably if you can afford it. And again, prices are going to be vary by region, so I'm not going to kind of quote any prices to you. And uh, but in a, just make sure that you you set your budget, and then when you get, when you look at your budget, it has enough to fit these kinds of components in it at least. That's that's how I like to do it. I don't. I it's tough to. Just go get the cheapest stuff. I I almost never recommend to just buy the cheapest laptop you can possibly find. That's probably not going to be the best investment of your money because as as we've realized, Matt and I, we've kept some of our machines for I think six, seven years at this point. And this was again, six, seven years ago. So that's why I think honestly, investing in something good now could benefit you for the next 10 years even. Like you might be able to keep a very good gaming laptop for 10 years. Another big thing with gaming laptops, if you want longevity on them, is a thing called a Thunderbolt 3 connector. And that's like a USB-C Thunderbolt 3 connector. Make sure it says that in the laptop description page because what it will give you is the ability to hook up an external graphics card. So in the future, six years down the line, if you're noticing some issues with your gaming uh, and you're noticing that they're stuttering and stuff like that, you could always go out there and you have the option of instead of buying a completely new laptop, you have the option of just hooking up an external enclosure with a graphics card and then extending your lifespan of your laptop by another four or five years, which is, a you know, it's nice to have those options at this point. And that's a big change that a big trend that's been happening over the last couple of years is the ability to upgrade even laptop graphics with uh, with the with the thunderbolt 3 connector the ability of laptops having almost desktop graphic cards in them like a, a 2060 graphics card this is a very powerful graphics card we're talking like being able to game at full resolution like 1080p resolution uh with 144 fps i i don't know if that means anything to you but essentially it's very very good and being able to do that for probably a very long time like three or four years probably at at that performance rating and it's i think it's a kind of an important piece the other thing with saying that is when you're gaming you're going to want to look at something great so you want to get a decent screen and a decent screen at this point for a gaming laptop will have to have at least 144 hertz in my opinion unless you're going for the budget range if you're going for the budget range, you're okay with getting a 60 hertz screen. Don't worry about it. It's not the biggest deal in the world. But when you go to that next level of 144 hertz, that it's tough to go back. Everything is a lot smoother. It's, it also has a benefit for working as well because with a 144 hertz screen, you don't see as much jittering on your mouse. You don't see as much jittering when you're scrolling. And it actually is known to help eye fatigue. So when you're staring at a screen all the time, that's one of the bigger reasons that I bought a 144 screen because I had a little bit of eye strain with that 
I don't, I think it has helped. Like I haven't been able to quantify it obviously, because it's one of those things that you kind of either feel or you don't, but it, it, I feel like my eye strain has gotten a lot better. I've been able to use the computer for longer. So 144 Hertz screens, I definitely recommend when you're going for, especially a gaming screen, because it makes the game look really smooth. So with that, with that being said, again, 16 gigs of Ram, that's my minimum. It's, it's a minimum across all three of my categories here. The next category is called utility. And utility is something like you're not a gamer, but you want a laptop that's not necessarily thin and light and being able to port around portable enough, but you want it to just last for a long time and you want it to do the job of web development extremely well uh, for a long time. And this, I, I find like there's a lot of these machines out there now where they will just combine like a decent graphics card in it. Uh, and I was saying like, don't get a 1050 or anything like that or a 2050 um in the in the previous section for gaming but here there's no big deal like a a graphics card of that caliber will be more than enough for you because it'll be great for video editing it'll be great for any sort of light gaming that you want to do video watching stuff like that for a very long time so there's no there's nothing wrong with having a graphics card like that but plus you can also have something that's maybe a little bit cheaper than a gaming laptop maybe a little bit more sleek a little bit thinner and you're looking for something in in the in the range of like you know it's going to be about 15 inches it's going to be it's going to be slim i know lenovo sells quite a few of these laptops they're uh in the idea pad uh category they also have uh, some think think pads that are considered to be kind of a utility class laptop they'll usually you're looking for a regular not u series processor like what i was saying before the u is the low power you're looking for probably something that has a little bit more uh, power to it. And these are called, uh, I think it's HQ or H series processors. So you want to look for the H at the end. That means that they can be a little bit faster. They're a little bit more power hungry, but they're also, they'll also give you more performance. And that's something that you're looking for in a utility class. And here you want to make sure that your processor is six cores. In my opinion, if you're looking for a utility computer, you're looking for something that will last you a very long time. As I was saying before, cores count at this point, it's only going to get more and more utilized in the future. Look for a six-core processor in this in this, in this kind of uh, class of, of laptop. So that's kind of where what I wanted to give you an overview of laptops, desktops. Um, I still kind of I, I really like having a desktop, but I'm seeing I'm seeing them kind of go away for the most part. So I'm not going to go too too far into a into the desktop sphere at this point. Just suffice to say that most of my recommendations in the laptop section will also apply to a current desktop. That's kind of where we're at. That's the trend right now is that laptops and desktops are very similar. The big difference, and I'll, I'll just say this once, is uh, the fact that desktops have many more cores. So as I was saying, like six cores, desktops are known now to have at le- like a very affordable eight core version. And that's great. Like if you want great performance for a very long time, they'll have, you can get a Ryzen desktop. That's an AMD CPU with eight cores for a very affordable price. And that thing, I, in my opinion, should last you like six, seven, maybe that 10 year mark. Like I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that the trend is that we can buy a computer now and with minimal upgrades in the future, have it last for that 10 year mark. Cause that would be amazing. Not only for uh, us and our wallets and our sanity, because we don't have to constantly set up new computers for ourselves, but also kind of like an environmental thing where you're not recycling computers, you're not throwing them out and putting them in a landfill, you're using them for a very long time. Maybe after you use them, you give them to your little brother, you give them to your friend or something like that as well. That's kind of what I've been doing with my old computers. But that's that's where that's where the industry is right now. I'm 
I want to make sure that people are educated. If you have any other questions about the industry, like I'm, I follow it pretty closely. So just again, I self plug, you can join our discord server and ask right there. You can mess it. You can message us on Twitter. You can message us on Instagram. Uh, we'll, we'll have all the information for you in the show notes about how to reach us and stuff like that. Uh, with that, I just want to ask Matt a couple questions with all this being said. So although the industry is still in an upswing in terms of performance gained a year, it seems to be slowing down. Like, like we've noticed us being able to use laptops for a long time, us being able to use our computers for a long time. Do you think it's because you think it's, it's time to kind of invest in a more expensive system and would it be a good investment because it's maybe viable for another six to 10 years in the future? Or do you think that there's going to be another breakthrough or there's too high of a risk of breakthrough? So we should be kind of spending a medium amount of money to avoid that risk because if there is a breakthrough i just want to reiterate that all the machines now will kind of become obsolete that's the risk that that i see but i don't see it happening well the thing excuse me the thing with that question too is that is that even if there is a breakthrough if there's been a fair bit of machines sold in this era like right now let's say three years ago until now if there's been a fair bit of machines there if you're talking about games and software and, you know, I don't know, whatever other software there is, because the games are also software, but any, any type of service software that runs on stuff, OSs, whatever, um, those things will be made to run on the computers that people have. At the end of the day, the software guy is going to get essentially yelled at when their software doesn't run on the things that a lot of people have. And so, you know, ultimately a lot of people are not going to be jumping on the bandwagon of just buying something because it's brand new. You know, there is a group of people that do that. And those type of people also, you know, generally buy new cars every year. There's always a, like a segment of each market or each fan base that buys the new thing every year. But there's also a, a segment that's more utilitarian, even when they buy something high end. There's a lot of people who will buy high end in a utilitarian manner where they buy something that's really high end for longevity. So there's the utilitarian part. They keep it for like 10, five, 10 years, whatever the lifespan of the computer is. And then they upgrade again to something high end. So they're spending more in one bulk payment, but they're being utilitarian by keeping the computer around, giving away at the end or using, or what I call appliancing it out, you know, making it into a server or making it into something else uh, or a backup, even something like that. That is, that's a very big piece of the market, I think. It's not something that you need to consider because people will hold on to things. And actually, as a, just as a, an example of what I have, I have a Windows, uh, I have a Samsung Tab Pro S that runs Windows 10 Pro and it only has four gigs of RAM in it. We're talking about 16 gigs of RAM and all that. I'm able to do what I need to do on it. Yes, I yes I see it, you know, struggle with a lot, a lot of tabs. Yes, I see it struggle when trying to render video and stuff like that, of course. But it is a thin and light in the strictest definition. It's literally a tablet. It's literally a Windows tablet with a uh, keyboard, you know, accessory. That's literally what it is. And so if I can do that with, a, you know, a, a tablet... At the end of the day, it's clear that Microsoft and these other software guys are still accommodating for people that don't have a lot of RAM because, I, you know, my in my particular case, it's because I'm using this very particular thin and light or this particular tablet. But other people are just going to have older computers. Some people are still going to have 32-bit systems, you know, hanging around. And there's going to be some – see, like, like look at how long it took for applications to kind of start kicking 32-bit to the curb. You know, it's kind of happening now, or I would say it is happening now myself, but it did take five plus years, I would say. Well, actually, I'd say longer than that. 32 and 64 kind of existed, you know, coexisted for a long time. 
And then even when 32 started getting kicked to the curb in terms of people purchasing, you know, the 32-bit hardware, the software was still supporting 32 and 64 for a long time. And there's still a lot of software that still support 32 to this day. So that's that. I would say that's a big piece of it. If you are a person, though, that is really keen on, like, let's say you're utilitarian, but you also don't want to fall behind, then a breakthrough is just something that is a lottery for you. Because unless there's a bunch of articles coming out that, that's saying, like, hey, we figured out how to put 170 cores on this thing, you know, or something ridiculous, right? Or we found out how to make, or how to, like, make RAM super cheap, so we're just offering 200 gigs of RAM in, like, basic computers or something, you know, whatever. Like, obviously, that's ridiculous, but some sort of major breakthrough. That's just a lottery. You don't know when a new invention is going to come through. And so you're kind of stuck in that way. But if you do buy something now and something breakthrough comes out in a few years, you know, maybe keep your eye on it. But I wouldn't be worried if I, if, if you have something that's good today. Yeah. And that, that's a really good way to put it. I, I fully agree with your, your sentiment. Um, because you're absolutely right. If you're, if they're going to be supporting computers for a very long time and they do, like there's computers out there that are running that are already like 10, 15, like 10, 12 years old and they're still being supported then that means that it's probably going to happen in the future. And we have a it's almost a safer bet now than it ever was to put your money on a computer and just use it for a very long time. I feel just like what, with what you're saying, with the way that the trend has been going with how powerful everything is right now. And the, the wall, I can see us hitting walls as well. That's the other thing is before I couldn't see us hitting a wall because we were uh, the, the other big thing, big thing in the industry is we're going down to smaller and smaller nanometer counts on the transistors uh I, I believe it's like 14 for intel or 12 for intel and then seven nanometers and that's tiny like tiny 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 like i can't even describe how tiny that is that's how that's how small they're making the transistors essentially at this point on what on what process they're making them uh, and the fact that they're going down to this tiny tiny process how much farther can they go down because they were, they were, I don't know what they started at, but I know a few years ago, like three, four or five years ago, they were at like in the, I think the thirties, the high thirties or the forties, even nanometers. And now they're going down to seven. So, and that's been a big factor in Moore's law, which is the doubling of performance every, so every X amount of years, um, is the fact that we could always go down, go down on the, tra on the, uh, process count. So make smaller and smaller transistors, fit more transistors into one chip and be able to make more and more decisions based on the amount of transistors you have. We're, we're reaching that limit at this point. There might be a breakthrough in some sort of uh, material or something else, something like that, that we don't see in, right now. But in my opinion, as you're saying it, there's just too much evidence to, to point to the fact that we might be using computers for 10 years. Like, I think that the next, like, if you buy a powerful computer, like Matt, you just bought a really nice laptop. That thing is a beast. Like it has everything that I was just describing there to be like one of the perfect gaming laptops. It has an i7 with six cores. It has uh, a 2070 graphics card with eight gigabytes of VRAM. Like it has was 16 gigs of RAM, right? I, I can't remember. I, I think it's 16, yeah. Yeah, I think it has 16 gigs of RAM. It has like an SSD for storage. That, that's also important, by the way. I want to point that out. Make sure that you have at least an SSD for storage. Well, and and um, and it has a store. Or it's like it's a boot drive, so the, it's NVMe SSD for boot. And then there's also a mechanical larger. I think it's one terabyte a storage drive as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's all upgradable too, which is great. Like you can go in there and put in a terabyte NVMe at some point, and another four terabyte hard drive or something. Like it, those are the kinds of things that make it 
last longer for me, in my opinion. Like, I think those are the things you'll probably upgrade in like three, four, five years is the storage. Uh, I think your RAM is also upgradable. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe you'll put 32 at some point. I'm not sure. Like, you don't use tabs, so I don't know what you need RAM for, I guess. Um, but, <laughs> Come on but now. Whatever. Like, you, you have 16, 16 gigs at least for the, as the minimum, in my opinion. But that thing is a beast. I fully believe that if you wanted it to, it could stretch for 10 years and you could still be like, you know, gaming and doing all the, definitely doing all the web development tasks that you could possibly think of on that thing. Like it can do whatever you want. Well, that's the thing too, is like, I have an old, I, I, it, it replaced an old Lenovo Y500, which was purchased when we were still in college. And it was considered, I think it was a, a mid range, uh, a mid to low range in terms of price. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, gaming laptop at the time had SLI and all that stuff like that. Uh, had their new Ultra Bay ports. You could, I think it's called Ultra Bay, but anyway, it's like has removable graphics cards via some proprietary port they have, that type of thing. And it, like, it lasted until now. And I literally was telling, I was talking to you about it. Like, I literally used that thing until the 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 paint on the keyboard started coming off, mm-hmm. and it was like still going. Like, I could go turn it on right now and just start using it, and it doesn't run things as well anymore. Obviously, um, it had to. I had to swap out the. Uh, the because it used to run on an old mechanical drive like the whole thing like storage and boot was on the same thing so i just put a put a i think it's a 500 gig samsung ssd in there with you know to help boost performance but that like really helped its performance and made it like last longer i think it's seven eight years old or something like that i don't remember how exactly how old it is but at the end of the day here like you know it's it, that was a that was a low to mid range i forget, i forget how exactly where it was in the range but it certainly wasn't the higher end it was fifteen hundred dollars canadian at the time um, approximately, um, MSRP or whatever, but that, like, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty good for something that, you know, wasn't ultimately that expensive. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it wasn't really ultimately that expensive to be used that much for the freaking paint to start coming off. Like I said, um, and I have, like I said, we bought this new laptop, but I have a desktop that I'm still using right now. It was built, uh, again, in college around the same time, shortly before, maybe six months before or something like that, before I bought that laptop that I just mentioned and, or before I bought like the, the Y 500, this thing's gotta be, this thing's gotta be eight, nine years old, something like that. Right. Obviously around the same age as the laptop. And like, we just upgraded the GPU in it. And like, I mean, I don't even really notice it having a problem at all in anything. Really. I've only maxed out the CPU a couple of times trying to have been trying to render several things at once. Um, you know, multiple shows at once or whatever. And so it's just, it's one of those things where like I could keep using this thing. Like if, if, if my laptop was delayed in shipping for several months or something, I could still use this thing. There's absolutely no problem. I could use it to do everything the way it is now, you know? And, and I have a 15 year old monitor to my left here. Like, like (laughs) I have like 15 years old. It's a, you know, it's an old LCD monitor with the, with DVI and VGA and it still works. And it's my side monitor, right? It's not at the greatest quality anymore. But it's, you know, it's my side monitor. It works fine. And like, whatever, like it, I think it's because it's because this is, this isn't the days of the, the old IBM anymore where every year it was like, Oh God, this computer's shit. Now, you know, this computer's yep. garbage. You got to throw this one out. This, it, this is actually like the age of where computing is. I think I've said it before. Computing is becoming mundane. Computing is becoming very every day. You know, people compute all the time. And so you can use that same computer generally for, you know, quite a long time. It's, it's, it's nothing for me to see because, you know, family and friends will ask you to fix their computers. They're not into games. They're not into using their computer other than for email. 
and they'll bring you like an old HP that costs them, you know, $300 refurb that's seven to 10 years old. And the only reason why they, they, they called you is because it's not turning on. They wouldn't have called you otherwise. They wouldn't have been looking for another computer. And that's an old, that's a low end in terms of, you know, performance, you know, based on obviously they're not having several cores. They're not having all this crazy stuff, right? They're not having like a, sometimes they don't even have a dedicated GPU. Uh, and if, you know, if they do, it's not going to be a good one, right? In, in the grand scheme, but it's doing, it's doing whatever it does for them. You know, it's, it's getting the job done for them. So I even have my old college laptop and old gateway laptop. That thing still works fine. And I could, I realistically, if all my computers suddenly disappeared, I could use that. No problem at the end of the day. Um, and so realistically, I don't think it's as serious as a concern to be purchased to like, like just to kind of reiterate back to the question. The first question there is, I don't think it's, it's, I wouldn't worry too much about buying the very best. Like, obviously if, if you're about to buy a computer and the next generation is literally been announced and is about to come out the next week, maybe don't. Right. But I wouldn't worry about it too much because it's not like the old days where it's like, great, this computer's garbage now because it's been like four weeks. It's not like that anymore. Yeah. And and with with that being said, is it's also the like you can buy at this very moment that you're listening to to us and you can get a good computer. My my suggestion to you would be not to buy the cheapest one. Is is as we're saying, if computers are slowing if like the the technology and the progress is slowing down. If you buy a good one now, maybe not the most expensive one. Don't spend, you know, $10,000 on a computer unless you're getting an Apple MacBook, whatever, but don't spend that much on a computer. But spend a reasonable amount. Get go to go at least the medium class of computer because if you're going to be using something for 5-10 years, especially if it's something for your job, uh it's important to get something good. Like don't get the cheapest thing at Best Buy. That's my biggest point in this. Um I've known a lot of people to get to go to Best Buy and just get the cheapest thing, thing there because they're they're like the they're thinking about the older days where uh, every year something new came out that destroyed the th- the best thing on the market oh, at yeah. that point. That yeah, and people would just keep getting the cheapest thing available uh, because they were worried that next year something would come out and they would have to get it again. So, but that that's progress has stopped. So don't worry about that too much. At this point, a computer is an investment. I might not have too much resale value, but it will have great use. You you can get great use out of it for a very, very long time. And you don't want to use the cheapest thing. You don't want to have like a, a really terrible screen. You don't want to have a really terrible keyboard when you're working on it all the time. Like if you're, you know, doing your own, if you're, if you're not using a computer all the time, then not, this doesn't really apply to you. But if your work involves a computer, make sure you invest some money and some time into that. You know what I mean? Like make sure you do your research. Make Like you're listening to this, maybe go now and, Watch some videos on YouTube, watch some Linus tech tips, watch some uh, Paul's hardware or something like there's plenty of videos out there. Make some make a educated decision from a place of like knowledge rather than just going to Best Buy and being like, I need the cheapest thing here to be able to, you know, create a website to Matt's point. Yes, those things will still be able to do the work. That's 100 percent true. I uh, like like he said, his gateway computer, which is, I think, like probably at this point, eight or nine, uh, maybe nine years old. I, I guarantee you it could still do 90% of everything a web developer could possibly ever need it to do without too much of a detriment. Yes, it would load a lot slower because it's not using an SSD. Yes, it would like if you're do if you're doing anything with Webpack, the compiling would be slower. But, you know, waiting that couple extra seconds is in the end, it's not a huge deal. But again, to reiterate, don't 
don't settle for like the cheapest thing on the market because a they're gonna be potentially poopy computers like they they might break quite easily i've known a lot of hps to break out there like uh i'm not saying hps are bad there there is some good hps at this point i know that for a fact but back in the day a lot of them did break but there's plenty of lower end computers that are just aren't really that reliable so make sure that you a you do your research on the computer that you're buying and b you just don't don't spend the minimum amount i i hate i don't know it's one of my pet peeves i hate it when people spend the minimum amount on something that they're going to use every day i i also don't like it when you spend the maximum amount either i'm a, i'm kind of like the intermediate like spend the amount that seems reasonable to you but especially yeah, that, with a with a market that is so is so different like you know you can get anything from the the machine that is used literally to check your email to the machine that is used to do everything you do for your company if you're some sort of image editor shaving off I mean, I don't really know how long images take to to render or whatever or publish when you – or export, I guess is the proper term. When you're like a really – like, a, I don't know, like a Hollywood person where you're making movie posters, right? If you're, if you're like at that level of professionalism, you don't want to have some really cheap computer and that export time be super long or like it be, it'd be super awkward because it's like difficult to edit because it's lagging between your tools. At the end of the day here, contractors don't go to the dollar store to buy a hammer, but you can go to the dollar store to buy a hammer. But do- contractors do not, you know, not generally anyway. And at the same time, it's like, like I said before, like I said, I think I said it twice. Like you, I use that, I use that Lenovo until the paint started coming off of its keys. That's literally like physical proof of how much work I got out of that thing. Work, you know, play. Cause I bought it when I was in college, everything, like the whole thing, like, you know, it, it's that thing is, that thing is still running today. But even if it blew up a year ago, I would still have gotten well over my $1,500 worth. It's, it's kind of the, and this is an argument for another day, but this is kind of like the phone thing I was talking to Mike where I was saying that I don't care if my phone costs a grand because I'm on it for two or three hours a day, answering email, calling people, messaging people. Like it's literally like my personal computer that's attached to me that I'm buying every couple of years or every three years. At the end of the day here, it is worth a thousand dollars to me. Anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. And so I don't want to, yes, I could probably get out, get out, get out. I could probably get along, get along. What am I trying to say? Well, yeah, I don't know what (laughs) I could probably get away with. Thank you. Even though it was my own brain, I could probably get away with like buying a really low end, you know, like the, not of like, I'm not trying to like make fun of them, but you know, like the galaxy series, but it's not like the galaxy S like 8, S9, S10, you know, and the pluses and all that. It's like the Galaxy, like, A something. There's Actually, like, the A series is pretty nice now. But, yeah, I, I know what you're you saying. Know what I'm trying the, to say. Like, the like, the, the not, J series is the really cheap one. Okay, so, like, I'm not – but I'm not buying the A or even the J or anything, right? I'm buying – I'm buying the S. Like, yeah, I'm not a super rich millionaire or anything like that, but I use the crap out of my phone – I want to have something that's half decent. I don't want to be annoyed with stupid loading times, annoyed by things turning off, annoyed by, you know, bad battery life, which isn't even all that great, to be honest, in the on the biggest of phones. I don't want to deal with that crap. I literally just need a phone that works for me all the time, period. And that's sort of how I'm treating it, or that is how I'm treating that situation. And it's the same with a computer. Buy the one that suits your use case. How serious is your use case? How much are you going to use it? If you're literally, literally checking email, buy the cheapest one. That'd be my, that'd be my recommendation. If you're literally checking email, the heck with it. You know, obviously suit your use case. Cause if it breaks next year, you just buy another $200 one or buy a used one, whatever, right? Keep that price down. 
But if you're using this thing to edit photos, do web development, do programming in another way, like in a different language for different programs, whatever you're trying to do, if if your life relies on or is enhanced severely by your computer, don't buy that, you know, quote unquote dollar store computer. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. In fact, is like, just don't skimp on a really important tool and, and don't like with that being said, make sure that you know what you're doing when you're buying it. Like spend a little bit of time. Like I said, just research it because it is a very important tool. If you're a contractor, back to Matt's analogy, if you're a contractor and you're buying a hammer, you need to know what hammer to buy. You need to know why this hammer is important to buy. You're not just going to go to home hardware if you're a contractor and be and ask someone like, what's the best hammer for the cheapest price? Like that, that's just, that's, that's going to give you something that's not, it's not a professional way of handling something in my opinion when you're when you're working with a tool for your for your livelihood know a little bit about it you don't have to go full fully in depth into everything just know the basic stuff so you don't get ripped off so that you don't go to a best buy and they sell you a a $3000 computer with no graphics card or something like that when you need a graphics card just know that that that's kind of where I'll leave it yeah i definitely i definitely agree i think that that's a good closing note um, and if, and like, like Mike said, um, like Mike said on his, uh, shameless self plug network is that, uh, you know, if, if you're looking for, you know, advice, you can always message us or message the group in, in, on our discord, of course. Um, because like, I'm sure the guys in there will give you some help or at least tell tell you what they use and, you know, how they're getting along with it. So that's some sort of real world thing, real world, uh, experience. Can't talk now because I think it's the end of the episode. So anyway. Let's, let's conclude before I literally can't do the conclusion. So, so thank you for listening and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. Uh, you can follow us on the socials via at HTML, all the things that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter, which is at HTML, everything we're on medium for the time being. Again, that's a little bit of news is coming about that soon. Uh, we're on GitHub and, uh, we're also on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And with that being said, many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. You can find him at youtube.com slash rabbitworks JavaScript. And that's works spelled W-E-R-K-S link in all these links that I'm going to say. And that one will be in the show notes, of course. Garrick, also from Local Path Computing and Web Design. You can find him at localpathcomputing.com. And you can all, and also thank you to Craig, a.k.a. Cosworth. And also feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And we are signing off.